2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this evening to come into your house. We thank you for the, for the fellowship that we have enjoyed, for the friendships that we have here. for the community that we have, for the body that we are. The Lord, as we come, we come to you as needy people needing you. Lord, we're human, we're frail, we're prone to mistakes, and we're prone to sin. And God, we come to you tonight recognizing that and asking you to do a work in our hearts and in our lives that only you can do. Lord, I ask that you would take this message that you have given me, that you would use it in ways beyond even what I could dream or imagine in the lives of your people. Lord, if all I do is get up here and spout some words, it's nothing. We need you and that's what we're asking for. Because without you, I can do nothing. Lord, we thank you and praise your name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. God has allowed my wife and I the privilege of having seven children. I would have to admit from the get-go that I'm not the perfect parent. You could ask my kids and they will tell you that I've made mistakes. Um, they will tell you that I've gotten angry when I should not have. They will tell you that I have done things at various times that I should not have. I, I mean, I am not the perfect parent. And I don't want to set myself up as the perfect parent. But I have learned a few things about parenting over the last 19 years of having children. One of the things that I have learned is that there is a particular question that tends to drive most parents absolutely crazy. What is the question? Why? The why questions seem to never end. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> I have had to learn over the years that when my ch children ask why, many times it's not done out of a heart of rebellion. It's done because they desire to know and they desire to understand. 
And sometimes when my child comes to me and asks why, I just simply say, because I told you so, now go get it done. I, I mean, so, sometimes that is the most appropriate answer. Sometimes I will go into a little bit further depth. This past summer, um, I have enjoyed being back here in the United States and being able to teach my children some things that they have not been able to learn living in a mega city like Seoul. For example, mowing the grass. My, my children really have not had opportunity to learn to mow or to learn to do things to take care of a place. Because in Korea, that was all done for us. You, you wouldn't even hang a picture on the wall. You would call the interior designer, they would tell you where to put the picture, and then their carpenter would come up and hang it for you. It's just that you, the expert always does the expert work. And if you're not the expert in that field, then you don't do that work. Um, so I told Elijah this past summer, there was one particular time. I says, Elijah, I need you to mow the yard for me today. I need it done today. And he goes, Daddy, I have this weekend. Why can I not do it this weekend? And I said, okay, Elijah, well, let's think about this for just a minute. I could have said, Elijah, go do it because I told you so. Instead, I said, okay, Elijah, let's think about this for a minute. We have a trip coming up and we're leaving Saturday morning. That means you have tomorrow. Now you have school and it's supposed to rain tomorrow. When is the yard going to get mowed? It was like, Oh, I get it, Daddy. Okay, let's go get the mower. Sometimes when we ask why, it's just a simple desire to understand. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, God is our Heavenly Father. If you have accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. He says in 1 John that, he, that um, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. If you are, are a Christian today, if you are a believer, if you are saved today, you are God's child. I remember when Eliza was born, holding her for one of the first times, looking down on her and thinking, God, how can I do this as a dad I'm teaching her what you are like. I can't do this, God. Do we not treat God many times like we treat our Heavenly Father? I'm sorry, our, our earthly fathers. Do we not go to God and say, God, why do I have to do this? Or why is this happening to me? God, I don't understand. Tell me why. I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been there multiple times. I remember when Esther was sick and we were in Mongolia and we didn't know what was going on and I was walking across the street to the grocery store arguing with God. God, why, why, why? As I read God's word and as I study, I learn that God treats us sometimes the same way that we treat our kids. Sometimes God just simply replies, as he did with Job, just remember who I am. I mean, we could summarize the book of Job really easily 
in just a two minutes, actually not even a two minute summary, by saying Job chapter 1 is Satan attacking Job. Job chapter 2 through about 36 is Job's friends arguing with Job about his righteousness, uh, saying, Job, this is all your fault. And Job saying, no, I keep short accounts with God. I don't understand, God, why is this happening to me? I don't get it. Help me understand. God never answered Job's why question. Instead, what did he say? He simply said, remember who I am. Job 36, 38, 37, 38, right in that range, you have God telling Job, Job, I am the one that put the stars in the sky. I am the one that created the Leviathan. I am the one that that created the behemoth. Remember who I am. You know, something really amazing happens when we remember who God is. Our problems that once appeared so big become small. The bigger God is to us, the smaller our problems are to us. There are some times that God just simply says, remember who I am. There are other times that God says, you know, I think you need a little bit further understanding in this, so I'm going to explain some more to you. And that's what we have in our passage tonight. You see, you and I recognize, we readily acknowledge the fact that we have a command to go into all the world. We know that command. Many of us have memorized that command. We have heard that command preached time and time and time and time again. A command to go. Now, let me just say real quickly that you're not going if all you do is write a check. You're not going if all you do is say, Dear God, please bless the missionaries. If we're going to really honestly fulfill that command... We have to all be going. Brother Copes preached about that this morning. We have to all be praying. We all have to be giving. But do we not sometimes, we may never say it, but we get, dis- we get tired, we get discouraged, and we begin to say, God, why do I need to go? God, I don't get this. I have labored, I have worked, I have struggled, I have done everything I am supposed to do. Why do I need to keep going? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, with God, do we not get that way sometimes? We just need that little bit of extra encouragement. Well, that's what we find in our passage tonight. We find in our passage, and I'm going to have to be brief, Um, we find in our passage tonight four reasons that God gives us to keep going for the cause of Christ. The first thing that I see here is found in verse 9. It says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now I want to take just a minute here, because I've heard this verse taught in two different ways, and both of them are incorrect. I have heard this verse taught to where we have to earn God's love. So let let, let me explain what I'm saying. 
The more doors you knock, the more God will love you. The more tracts you hand out, the more God will love you. The more you serve in the church, more, the more God will love you. Let me just say straight up, that is not what this verse is saying. God will never love you any more than when he died on the cross for your sins. You cannot earn God's love. God's love is a free gift. It's summarized by the word grace. It is not something we can earn. You see, if we earn it, we deserve it. We never can deserve the love of our Heavenly Father. The other way that I've heard this verse taught, and I'll just take you back a few years. I was in Bible college here in Springfield. I was working at the McDonald's on Kearney Street. No, not Kearney Street. There, I was working at the McDonald's on Glenstone and Kearney, over there where the, the Kmart used to be. I think it's a golf thing now. Um, and I was working the second shift, closing shift, and there was a student from another Bible college in town that shall remain nameless that was working with me, and she was in the pastoral major of that Bible college. Now, that should tell you something right there. Um, but regardless of the fact, she came to me one night as we were working and said, Brother or Daniel, I will never understand you Baptists. You see, you say that once you're saved, you're always saved. But it says right here in this verse, and she pointed to this verse and said, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Therefore, we have to work to keep our salvation. Let me just say one of the first reasons of, or I'm sorry, one of the first things about Bible interpretation is that you always look at the context of what is around the passage. And 99.9% of the time, that context is going to answer your questions regarding the, that passage. And it is extremely obvious from the context of this passage that it is not dealing with salvation. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't have to go any further than there. Because the only people that will be at the judgment seat of Christ are believers. So what does it mean when it says we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him? Well, I believe that the answer can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when it's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're not going to turn there for the sake of time tonight, we learn that everything that we do is going to be judged by God. Now, it's not a judgment of right and wrong as much as it is a judgment of motives. Some people are going to see their life's work burnt up because all they did with their entire life is they served themselves instead of serving God. And let me just say straight up, there's going to be some pastors and some missionaries that see their life work burnt up because they served themselves rather than serving God. Others are going to see the gold and the silver and the precious stones. 
If I could put it a little bit differently, there was a parable in the New Testament, and it says that the, the parable talked about hearing their dad or their father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The Apostle Paul is simply saying here that we labor, that we go, that we minister, because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm privileged to have grown up in a home where my parents saw that we were in church every Sunday. I cannot remember a time that we were not in church. I jokingly yet seriously say to an extent that the rule in our house was that you had to be hospitalized (laughs) to not be in church. If you were not hospitalized, you were well enough to go to church. Now, I don't know how that will go today in the age of COVID, but I'm thankful for parents that saw that we were in church. And I'm thankful for a mom and dad that although they would be the first to tell you that they would love to see their grandkids and their son and their daughter-in-law more than what they do, they're proud to know that we're serving God. And every once in a while, my dad will come up and he'll put his arms around me and he'll say, son, I'm proud of you. It, it does something to you to hear that. Can you imagine with me for a minute what it will be like to have our Heavenly Father come up and put his arm around us? and say, son, daughter, I'm proud of you. That's what he's saying here. The second reason that we find, and I'm going to have to be very brief, in verse 11, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We don't like talking about the terror of God. It is so much more comfortable to preach even from a preacher's perspective, to preach about the love of God or to preach about ministry or or to preach about any other topic than preaching about the terror of the Lord. But let me just say that if we do not deal with it, then we're not doing the God-given job that he has called us to do to preach the whole counsel of God. The specific reference to in this passage, I believe, is speaking of the tribulation period. We know it as the tribulation period. Um, the day of the Lord is, is referred to in other passages of Scripture. It's a seven-year period of time after the rapture where God will deal with the nation of Israel primarily, and he will judge the world um, for their relations to the nation of Israel. Terror is the proper word here. It is a word that really drives terror into our heart just to hear it. The book of Revelation is very clear about what will take place during those seven years. And let me just say this, that the book of Revelation, although it's filled with a lot of imagery and figures of speech, it is prophecy, and it will come to pass. 
if you do the math, you go through the book of Revelation and you do the math, somewhere between 50 to 95% of the world's population will die in seven years. Think about that with me for a minute. It's hard to fathom. That means that there will not be enough people to bury the bodies. There will be bodies piled up in the streets in Springfield, Missouri, because there's not enough people to put them in the graves or to open the graves. It means that people will hide in their house in fear and refuse to come out and possibly even literally starve to death because they don't want to come out their front door because they're too afraid. I want you to think back with me, and I know that this is a relatively recent issue. And I'm going to do my best to stay away from the politics of everything, but I want you to think back 19, 20 months with me. March of 20, I believe it was 2020. COVID. At that time, we really did not know a lot about COVID. And I think we would universally agree that our news media got a lot of it wrong. But they said that COVID had, and they were estimating, and I'm using their estimates. I don't believe their estimates were accurate, but I'm using their estimates. Their estimates was that 5% of the people that caught COVID would die from COVID. Now, I don't want to minimize it in any manner. You and I both know that it is a real disease. We've had friends in the ministry pass away from it. We've had friends suffer with it. It, it is a real thing. I don't want to minimize it in any manner. But here is a disease that, and I personally believe that the death rate is probably closer to 0.6%. If you look at all the studies and statistics, it's probably much closer to 0.6%. But here is a disease using their death rates that only 5% of the people that catch COVID will die. And not everybody will catch COVID. Now, why do I bring that up? We shut down our nation. We shut down our schools. We shut down our churches. We shut down our places of entertainment. We shut down our international trade, and it was not just us. Almost, if not every country of the world did the same exact thing. Why? Because they were afraid of a virus that has a death rate, using their statistics, of 5%. When the terror of the Lord hits... It's going to pale in comparison to COVID. We can sit back and we can say, praise God, I'm not going to be here. And let me just say, I thank God daily that I will not be here during that time. And we could just raise up our hands and say, I'm out of here. And it's true, we are. We will not experience the terror of the Lord. But that does not change the fact that our friends and that our family members and that our co-workers, that our neighbors, that, our, that the people that we interact with daily will experience it. 
you and I know what's going to happen. And if we refuse to warn, just put bluntly, we're not doing our job. I know it's a bad illustration. I'm going to use it anyway. If the bridge was out and the highway patrol did absolutely nothing to warn people that the bridge was out and people every day were driving off that bridge and going to their death because their car would crash, would we not do something to warn people? Set up some type of of barricade ourselves or get upset with the highway patrol for not doing their job? Would we not demand somebody's job because they did not do what they were supposed to do? Yet how many times do we refuse to warn somebody? Whether it's we subconsciously think, I have another day, I can do it at a later time. Or we sit back and say, let somebody else do it. Or just by sheer inaction, we refuse to do the job that God has given us to do. We know what's coming. It's not a pretty picture. The Apostle Paul says, why do we do missions? Why do we keep going? Why do we go? Why, when when we could be doing so many other things, why do we do what we're doing? Because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, well done. Because we know what's coming. And then number three, for the love of Christ, verse 14, constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That word constraineth is a very interesting word. It's almost a word that's filled with contradiction because it has the idea of being bound. The love of God binds us and it has the idea of pushing or shoving. So that not only does the love of God bind us, the love of God pushes us and shoves us out. Let me try and illustrate very briefly. I remember back about 24 years ago when Lydia and I were dating, courting, whatever you want to call it that we were doing at the time, and we were over at Minnie Pearl and George's house, and we, we had watched a movie that night. And George, at the end of the movie, there, it was implied that there was a wedding, and George looked at us and said, when is yours? And my wife-to-be pulled out her calendar and said, how about this date? And pointed to a specific date on the calendar. I was like, okay. (laughs) But when it sunk in, I wanted everybody to know what was happening. I was getting married. Lydia loved me, and I wanted everybody to know. I, I remember we started making phone calls, and we started telling people. We went down to um, Wilson, not Wilson Creek, um, West Division, because she was going to West Division at the time, so I could talk to Pastor Kolb and, and uh, talk to her parents. And I, I, we wanted everybody to know what was taking place. She loved me, and I wanted to share that knowledge that, that I was loved with everybody else around me. 
when you and I have experienced the love of God, it should create within us a desire to share that love with others. I'm reminded of basically every salvation story in the Word of God. They all really go through the same stages. There is the stage of recognizing who God is and specifically recognizing His holiness. And in that stage, we then we come to the stage of recognizing that we are nothing more than filthy, rotten sinners deserving of hell. Then there is the stage of accepting salvation. And immediately following that stage, there is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I have experienced your love. I have experienced salvation. I have experienced your love. Now, how can I serve you? That's what it's talking about here. The love of God constraineth us. It binds us and it shoves us out to share that love with others. There's one more thing that we find here. Verse 15. That he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. For lack of better terminology, I'd like to put it this way. It is simply your duty. The Apostle Paul is simply saying here that if it's not enough for you to hear your Heavenly Father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if that has no meaning to you whatsoever, if it's not enough for you to know what's going to take place and I believe at any moment, it is closer now than it was even yesterday. It's closer now than it was two years ago. If it's not enough for you to know what's coming down the pike, if it's not enough for you to share the love of God having experienced it, it is simply your duty. He says here that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. To put it in a little bit different words in the book of um, Romans, when he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. He is simply saying, when we consider all of what Christ has done for us, how can we not live for him? How can we not be involved in telling others? C.T. Studd was a famous preacher, missionary, back, I believe, in the 1800s. He was contemporary with Hudson Taylor, D.L. Moody, in, in that time frame. C.T. Studd was a famous cricketer. Now, I don't know a lot about the game of cricket. I, I know that it's a game played in England, and my wife has tried on occasion to tell me a little bit about the game. I, I don't get it, okay? I'm not a sports person. I don't get the game. But he was a very well-known, very successful cricketer that came from a very wealthy family. And at one point in his life, he gave it all up. He renounced his family fortune. He left the cricket field, and he went to be a missionary. I don't have his life biography in front of me. I believe he went to China first, and then he spent most of his life in the, country, or in the continent of Africa, serving the Lord in Africa. And at one point, somebody came up to him and said, 
I, I don't know, they called him by name, I would assume. C.T. Studd, why did you do what you did? Was it not hard to give everything up? He said, I came to realize that repentance means to buy back. And that, not repentance, that redemption means to buy back. And that Christ redeemed me. And I'm paraphrasing it. You can look up the quote later or I could give you the exact quote later. He says, when I came to understand that I had been purchased by God, I had to either be a thief and keep what was not mine or give up what was already his. And when I came to that understanding, it was very simple. I didn't want to be a thief. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. When you accepted Christ, God purchased you. You lost all claim to your life. It's now his. For we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. The Apostle Paul said in another passage in Corinthians... So you have to decide today, are you going to be a thief and keep what was not rightfully yours? Or are you just going to simply say, here am I, God. I'm yours. Use me. Why do we do what we do? Well, it really honestly should be enough for us to simply say, God told me to do it, therefore I'm going to do it. I mean, we know the command. We've memorized it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But if we're honest, many times, and if I could say most of the time, that's not enough. We just simply don't do it. We don't open our mouth. We don't pass out tracts. Oh, we do. Don't misunderstand me. We do, but not like we should. I'm a little bit busy today at this particular moment. So I'm not going to open my mouth to that person that is guarding the self-checkouts at Walmart. I'm not going to invite them to church or hand them a tract. They're busy, I'm busy. I'm just going to pass through the line and go on my way. I've done it. You've done it. We know the command of God, but yet we didn't obey it. God could have just simply said, I told you to do it, now go do it. Instead, he gives us four reasons. We want to be accepted. We want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because we know what's coming. We know that this word is true, that this word is complete, and what it says will happen. We know that the book of Revelation is not just a bunch of symbolism, and it's not something that happened in 70 A.D., that it's something that will happen in the future. Because we've experienced the love of God, and we want to share that love with others. And we recognize the fact that we've been bought with a price. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. This past month has been a month of missions here at Hillside Baptist Church. You've heard missionaries share their hearts. You've heard pastors share his heart. You've heard Brother Copes 
share his heart about the need for laborers. There is so much more that I could say about the need in Canada, the need around the world, the need here in Springfield. May we all do our part. May we all be faithful to the command of God to go by praying, by giving, and by going. Pastor. Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, as we have heard the message, we just ask you now that you would work in our hearts. We are thankful for you, for the word of God. And Lord, may it not return void as we just turn, and turn our lives over to you. May we be a living sacrifice. Now please, Lord, use this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.